The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 5th, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The college rankings are out. Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Washington. Oh yeah, that's the football rankings. Here are the academic rankings. U.S. News says Princeton, Harvard, Yale, U Chicago, but also the worst. We now know the worst college. It's the Electoral College. I'm just judging the Electoral College against what it's trying to do. Like, let's take the Colorado College of Mines. Good college, bad college? I don't know. But they're trying to teach kids about mines? And by gum, they teach kids about mines. Their motto, what's ours is mine, says it all. A mine is a terrible thing to waste. But I went on their website. Lots of mine classes. The Electoral College? Uh, Not really doing what it needs to do. It was created to save our democracy from a pure expression of itself, right? Let's inject some elites in there, temper the passions of the masses. You know, it's a questionable goal, but it's also a terrible execution. And no one even knows the rules of the Electoral College. Some states have bound electors. Some allow for faithless electors. So I'm trying to find out which. I Google it. Electoral College rules. First hit that comes up, National Archives. And there I find this paragraph. How does the Electoral College process work in my state? For information on the Electoral College process in your state, contact the Secretary of State of your state. To find your Secretary of State, go to the website for the National Association of Secretaries of State, nass.org. So I go there. Big banner ad, come to the meeting of the National Association of Secretaries of State. So I Google Electoral College rules. Two irrelevant hits and one what looks like a PowerPoint, a slide presentation from someone named Amy Bunk that does not answer the question, but instead directs you back to the National Archives site, which is how I got here in the first place. This is not the DMV, all right? This is not how do I register my kid for a different bus stop? Oh, you got to call the district office. No, the district office says you got to call the bus company. This is the fundamental building block of our democracy. So finally, I find out what the rules are. There is no federal law that requires electors to vote as they have pledged, but 29 states in D.C. have legal control of how their electors vote. This means 21 states have no requirement of how their electors vote. Special note, over the years, a number of electors have violated their state's law. These violators often only face being charged with a small fine or a misdemeanor, and scholars agree that the electors remain free agents despite what state laws said. Got that? Got This is how we choose the most powerful person on earth, and no one knows the rules, no one's tested the rules, and what's worse is no one cares about the rules. Ah, well, it's the best system we have. No, 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 no. It's a terrible system. Ah, well, it is a system we have. No, actually, this what I just described doesn't fit the definition of the word system. It is a hodgepodge of untested ideas that Alexander Hamilton didn't even set to rhyme. Different rules for different states. No one pays attention. Hard to figure out who's governed by what rules. The Electoral College is not my first choice. The Electoral College was not my safety. No one has a sticker in their rearview mirror for the Electoral College. The Electoral College is ill thought out, poorly maintained. We're told it's good enough, but it's clearly subpar. It is the Electoral Community College at best, and I, for one, question its accreditation. 
on the show today. I go inside pretty much everything that Trump has tweeted in the last few days and connect it to the amount of money Trump's going to make. But first, The People versus O.J. Simpson was one of the boldest documentaries I've ever seen. It unspooled over five episodes, and now it's actually playing in theaters at an eight-hour running time. It has actually just been shortlisted for an Academy Award, and its director, Ezra Edelman, is here. When I went over to Rockingham, he had like three TVs, and each and every one of them, he had a different channel on. CNN is staying on top of the Chicago. Suspect. What are you talking about? Is he crazy? And I said, OJ, what happened to your finger? At the time, the OJ Simpson trial was said to be the trial of the century. We're beginning to learn just now that it really is more than the trial of the century. It can be seen as the story of America. And making this point eloquently, well, were two documents. There was the FX dramatization of it, which was fantastic. But in a league of its own was Ezra Edelman's documentary, OJ, Made in America. It was an ESPN feature. It uh, spooled over how many episodes? How many Hours? Uh, five on t- five on television and streaming. Five on television. Ezra Edelman, the director of that documentary, is here. Thanks for coming in, Ezra. Thank you. So how old were you when all these events went down? The trial, I mean. Uh, I was the Bronco Chase, June 17th, 1994. I had just finished my sophomore year in college. And okay. so I was uh, at home at my parents' house watching that. So we're almost the same age. So that means the events, an older generation, people slightly older than us would always remember where they were when Kennedy was assassinated. Mm -hmm. But now I think the cultural touchstone events of people of our lifetime would be 9-11, the Challenger explosion, the Bronco chase, and probably this election. Probably add to it when you found out that Donald Trump won. I think that those are the four. Uh, Yeah, but I would say that the first three... Yeah, are very different from because they were unexpected and because yeah, because, right? And, and I mean, it and, wasn't going to happen. And I was going to say, even the Challenger event was different in the sense that you know, depending on where you were, and I was in an elementary school classroom, and sort of you're actually watching something when this incredible tra- you know tragedy happens, but you were sort of already geared to something was you know there was already an event that was going to take place, whereas. 9-11, tragically, and the Bronco chase were these things that were unforeseen where you woke up and or were somewhere and someone said, turn on the TV. Like, this is what's happening in your mind and your sort of worldview, certainly in the case of 9-11, was you know, fundamentally altered. And with this election, I feel like, depending on how you've been absorbing it and paying attention, this is something that you've been contemplating, fearing and or looking at in disbelief that this could actually happen. Yeah. And so in some ways, this is a two-year process. Yeah. And so in that way, it's like it's as transformative in terms of the place that the country we live in, certainly more so than watching OJ on the 405 on a Bronco. Um, but we've had, I think, a little bit more time to, to wrap our heads around it, even though now, depending on who you are, there's not enough time in the history of the world to wrap your head around what happened. So after the verdict, when did you start becoming interested in it as, as a larger glimpse into society? 
um, when ESPN approached me and asked me if I wanted to do a film about it. Really? <laughs> did you read the Tubin book? After I was approached to do the film. <laughs> so when they asked you, did you say, what, well, what'd you say? Um, they asked me if I was interested in making a five-hour film. <laughs> and I said, I am interested in making a five-hour film. I said, what is this film about? They said, OJ. And I said, I do not think I'm interested in making that film. I, I was not interested in OJ. But here's the thing. I don't mean to say that I was so ignorant of what that crime trial conversation was. I know fundamentally what it was about. And so, frankly, when they asked me, I said, well, what is there more to say about it? Mm -hmm. Like, this has been discussed and picked over, like, from the standpoint of, like, did he do it or not do it? I could not care less. So, I'm like, and I'm not doing that. If you want to do this film, you want to do this thing that's going to be about the trial, I'm not interested in that. But you do want to do something that is formally ambitious that I'm interested in. What is this thing about? Well, if you're going to give me this much time, then I can explore these things that I am more engaged. Yeah. It is a story about race in America. Right. It is a story about the city of Los Angeles. It is a story about the LAPD and the black community there. It is a story about um, the celebrity in America. It is a story about um, masculinity and identity and the criminal justice system and, and all in like, yeah, I could get into that. And so immediately when I even started thinking about it after that first conversation of be, after being approached, it was, well, okay, I know OJ grew up in the project in San Francisco. I know he went to USC in 1967. I know what USC was during those years. I know where USC was located vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis Watts, which sort of burned in violence, you know, on the, you know, after an incident of police brutality a year and a half before OJ got there. I understood what OJ, the path he he took, and immediately like those I'm like, "Oh, those there are all these juxtapositions within that in that world." And sort of, you know, from an identity standpoint, from a race standpoint, from a cho the choices that he was making, that was enough for me to like, well, I'm interested in that. Did you do all the interviews? I did. Oh, my God. Estimate how much raw tape that might have been. 72 interviews. Let's call it like an average of two and a half to three hours an interview. Yeah. So, you know, that's 200, two, you know, say 180 to 200 hours of, of interview footage. Um, so, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's a week, more than a week without doing anything. When the some of the uh, police who became flashpoints in the trial, when they spoke, I think, honestly and brazenly to you, uh, did you expect that? How did you react in that moment? How did you get them to that moment? Uh, I didn't expect that. I think that, you know, a lot of people have asked me, like, what surprised you the most? And I never, I'm like, I don't have an answer to that question. But I guess the answer to that question would be, broadly that people after they had agreed to sit for an interview were more open and forthcoming than I would have imagined. Yeah. And that certainly includes the cops. And so I think that my guess is that they w did appreciate that I was taking a longer view of this. And this was a larger discussion about the city that they are from, the city that they have sort of been you know, helped or try to police in the, in the, over the course of decades and that they have real world, real life experience and real opinions still that they would want to offer that, you know, in light of the world that we live in, maybe they feel that those opinions have been sort of, uh, discredited or mm -hmm. sort of not heard in the way that they sort of, that, you know, go against their experience and belief system. So yeah, it surprised me that some things that came out of people's mouths that even if it was not Oh, you really believe that? It's also like, 
you're not a dumb person. So even if you really believe that, you know how people in um, gonna absorb are going to absorb what's coming out of your mouth. And that's somewhere between that's really brave or it's really stupid. I'm not so sure which, but like how I reacted to it was like, okay. And yeah. in some cases it's like, is that what you mean? Like, do you, is this, I just, I'm not trying to burn anybody weirdly. Like I just kind of want to have a, an open, honest conversation. And so there were a couple of times I was like, really? So I did want to talk about the election because I've been thinking about OJ and the election. You're um, going to get me in trouble. Why's that? I don't know. No. No, I'm joking. Yeah. That's fine. There were definitely racial undertones and overtones. And we saw uh, an America surprise itself in a way. I even saw a comedian, I think it was Chappelle, it might have been Rock, saying, you know, I haven't seen this many upset white people since the OJ verdict. So do you think that America fools itself for a time and then retells itself the story? Or do you think that where, you know, President Obama would say the arc towards uh, history bends towards justice? It's I mean, long, yeah. yeah, how it's do you... It's long, but it bends. It's toward, long, the moral, but it The bends. arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm-hmm. I've always said you could be living during the medieval times and wait 300 years and not see any evidence of that. But what, what do you think? Do you think the election showed us things that OJ showed us 20 years ago and we haven't really progressed as much as we think? Oh, I don't think they're comparable. I'm not only the shock and yes, the divide, you know, the, the sort of analogy is that, wait, two different groups of people, however you want to define those groups of people are looking at one thing and seeing something different mm-hmm. and not quite understanding and not understanding how the other person is like, how did you, you, how do you think that? That's not possible because I'm looking at the same thing and I see something completely different. What, you know, what the fuck? I don't know in terms of out loud. I don't know anybody who voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. I don't have any friends who voted for Trump. So it's like when I know the way I absorb Donald Trump in terms of the rhetoric that came out of his mouth is what I don't know actually what his true core belief system is, but I know the things that he said, and I know that everything he said has been so alienating to so many people that I think I was lulled into a sense of I live in a country where it's not it's not possible that that guy could be elected president. I sort of allowed myself to weirdly drink the Kool-Aid of he is unqualified. You know, there's just a fringe element of people who would be like, that's okay. You know, and I can't devalue everybody who might just actually care about this one or two, you know, these single things here and there that are not sort of germane to my life. Yeah. It's a, it's just, I'm still processing it. I mean, it's shocking to me. You made me think of the analogy of black America at the time of the OJ verdict to white America uh, who voted for Donald Trump, that the feelings were so raw that it overwhelmed perhaps the evidence. And maybe you could make a case that the rest of us who don't know anyone who could possibly think that way need to understand this other side of things. Well, I do, I do think here's the thing. I mean, I think that in some ways I've said this about the OJ verdict or like what was happening at the time where there was a little bit of an intellectual versus emotional sort of conflict happening and yes. sort of what African-Americans felt very fundamentally based on you know, the history of injustice at the hands of the police, the criminal justice system, and the feeling of having experienced that personally or family members or friends, like that's a very emotional place to be living in. So when you see this high profile African-American on trial with the sort of notion that he might have been framed by the police and everything, it's like you emotionally are sort of going like, no, like I'm going to, I feel protective and I want to him to get off. And that's, and, in, and I can see on the other end, if someone, and it doesn't have to be 
you know, racial, but it's like intellectually like, well, here's the evidence. Yeah. And and the woman prosecuting the case against him, if you will, literally or figuratively, is someone that people find unlikable. So she's not the perfect vessel to make that point. But, but here's the thing. So part of the film, right, is the notion that I wanted to try to have white viewers emotionally connect with that history of injustice. So when you got to the point of the trial and or the verdict, you would sort of have a different experience emotionally yourself. You can go, I understand now yeah. why people thought invested in his innocence. I understand forgetting OJ himself, why they celebrated his acquittal because I've just been taken on this journey and maybe I have a perspective that makes sense. Now, the to me, the scary thing is there is an analogy between the white Trump voter and the black person who was hoping OJ got off. But the difference is one is rooted yeah. to me in this history of subjugation, racism, brutality, disenfranchisement, disempowerment. Yeah. And this other one is, unfortunately, even if those feelings have crept up because of what they sense is happening in the country, the other is rooted in the opposite of that. Yeah, it's legitimate versus illegitimate grievance. Now, who are yes. we to say illegitimate? Well, where people like filmmakers or podcast hosts and, you know, you chronicle it. And-, and, and, that's, and that's where the profound heartbreak comes in. That's where you, that whole, I think, idea of this sort of arc of the moral universe and you feel at a certain point, oh, we're on this continuum. I don't know if we're on our way down, but we're still going towards that place and we've gotten past these things we've gotten we're getting to a better place mm-hmm. and that's where as i mean it's like oh i think i deluded myself yeah well then again that's a the arc of the moral universe is a fancy way of we shall overcome him and that was you know sung while picking cotton so but you actually feel like i actually i think you know you forgot who controls the country and you you know it's like and that's where you sort of bought into this sense that we've we have progressed in a certain way and yeah, and that's it's a wake-up call. I think Tubin has said that he regards OJ's status now incarcerated in Nevada as also an injustice when judged against the uh, the crimes that he was actually accused of and what the sentence should be. Uh, are you comfortable with uh, conclusions? I mean, yeah, it's funny. We're talking about the, again, we're talking about the moral universe. Yeah. There's karmic justice. There's legal justice. And so, like... Is it wrong for him to have gone to jail for 33 years for that crime? Yes. Do I feel bad about it? No. No. That's my answer to that question. Ezra Edelman, director, OJ, Made in America. It is on Hulu. It is on, if you have uh, ESPN, it is still on demand. We demand that you watch it. By the way, I will say that this was probably the longest periods of your film were the longest uninterrupted non-sports mentions on ESPN in that network's history. I feel good about that. Yeah. (laughs) At least you kept Stephen A. Smith from yelling at me off the TV for a little while. So thank you for that. Uh, You're welcome. Ezra Edelman, thank you. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. We here at The Gist, we are a pre-post-truth podcast. Doesn't always help in the world we live in now, but let's apply the principles. Donald Trump tweeted today that he wants to cancel Boeing's contract to build Air Force One for $4 billion. Now, perhaps coincidentally, 
That tweet came 22 minutes after the Chicago Tribune posted an article titled, Boeing CEO Waits for Trump's Trade Play. First graph, the brain trusted Boeing among the city's largest companies and global aerospace and defense powerhouse must cringe every time President-elect Donald Trump riffs on foreign policy, especially when it comes to dealing with China. So you could just see Trump saying, cringe, I'll show you cringe, said Now, because Air Force One is just any plane that the president is on, there's not just one plane. Boeing has a contract to build two. A garden variety 747 jumbo jet costs almost $400 million. So two of them will cost almost $800 million without modifications. Remember, Air Force One has to be the mobile command center for the president and senior staff in case of an attack. The Air Force Ones that we have now, 747s built in 1986, include a command center, a medical suite, bedroom, office, two food preparation galleys, and plenty of room for staff and reporters. So $4 billion, it seems high, and maybe it is high. In fact, maybe it's plucked from straight out of the air. It seems to come from Todd Harrison, who's with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And even though Boeing has only spent a hundred something million dollars now, Harrison projects that the Air Force Ones could cost $4 billion. Maybe yes, maybe no, this is on the high end of estimates. Todd Harrison, and the gist has an interview request in, we hope to bring you that, is clearly a learned man who doesn't take political shots left and right, but I will quote from a Todd Harrison tweet from election night. A democracy gets the government it deserves. Yes, and I will add, but it also needs a vigilant press. And with that in mind, I advise you to follow Trump's money. Trump with carrier. Gotta follow the money. Trump's a showman, but after the circus rolls out of town, the elephants do leave dropping. So one thing is that this thousand jobs saved. No, it turns out it's 730, according to the union, whose jobs were saved. Also, it turns out, and this wasn't reported until after the big show, that Trump is an investor in United Technologies Carrier's parent organization. He can make money off the deal. What about the Taiwan phone call? Here's The Guardian. Weeks before President-elect Donald Trump's controversial phone call with Taiwan's president, a businesswoman claiming to be associated with his conglomerate made inquiries about a major investment in building luxury hotels as part of the island's new airport development. The Trump organization came out with a statement that says there are no plans, note the current tense, to build in Taiwan, but at least the discussions happened. It's a place where Donald Trump could invest and could make money. Such a phone call you could see would smooth the waters. Now we have Masa Bank, known as SoftBank. Masayoshi's son is the head of the bank, and he is investing, Donald Trump tweeted, $50 billion in the U.S. What does that mean, investing? I don't know. I remember in the 1980s when Japanese companies were buying up U.S. businesses, including icons like Rockefeller Center, and That wasn't seen as investing, though it could be called investing. And I'd also like to note that the economy of Japan is in recession, out of recession, in recession, but follow the money. And this hasn't been reported. Although Trump didn't release tax records, he did release a list of his assets, including stocks. And that's how the journalist discovered that Trump had shares of Carrier's parent. Also, this comes up when examining Trump's plan to repatriate money parked abroad Apple, for instance, would pay big dividends to investors if this were the law and Trump's number one holding is stock in Apple. But as derelict as the media has generally been in checking on Donald Trump's stock holdings, it's been absolutely silent on anything more complex than a simple stock. And I get it. Trump has listed a lot of assets. My favorite, the Trump carousel. Value, 
hundreds, $250,000 income, half a million dollars on that carousel. But let's look not just at his stocks. Let's look at his mutual funds. And there you find he is invested in the Barron, the mutual fund company, not his son, the Barron Emerging Markets Fund. The third largest holding of that fund, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. In fact, over 8% of the fund is in Taiwanese companies. For a small country, that's kind of enormous. That fund invests more in Taiwan than it does in Brazil. And Trump also invests in the Barron International Growth Fund. Sixth largest holding of that fund, the SoftBank Corporation. So this announcement will certainly, to some extent, enrich Donald Trump. I have not had a chance to look through all of Trump's holdings. Trump has not disclosed all of Trump's holdings. And I should note that a Trump spokesman today, after asked about it by reporters, says that Trump sold all his stock in June, but the spokesman didn't provide any details of this, didn't say anything about his mutual funds, and didn't do anything when the AP asked for proof. It is simply unprecedented for a president to have and do business with so many entities in which he can make money. Since he does not seem to have plans to allow for adequate disclosure of what his assets are, the media has no choice but to be extra aggressive. Not to insinuate that all his decisions are made for the purpose of personal enrichment, but to point out over and over again that if the president doesn't think it's necessary to open up his books, then the public can't be faulted if it regards all of Mr. Trump's assurances as empty. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube went to the Colorado College of Mimes, walking against the wind since 1879. Just producer Mary Wilson dressed up as a mascot for the Electoral College. The Faithless Elector, a blindfolded ballot box that stumbles about the sidelines of football games spooking children. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is a member of the Electoral College Booster Club, seats on the 50-yard line. They're terrible seats. You can't see what's going on in either U.S. political party. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, pledged a frat at the Electoral College. The hazing consisted of having Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 branded on your buttocks. The gist. The Electoral College may have weird rules, but dorms at the Electoral College have one rule. It's consistent. No hot plates. They stand by. Umpura Depuru Dupuru, and thanks for listening.